0: You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them, and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. He also said, "Write, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me it is done I am the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life the one who conquers will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son but the cowards faithless detestable murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb He then carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. The city had a massive high wall with 12 gates. 12 angels were at the gates. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. The city wall had 12 foundations and the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb were on the foundations. The one who spoke with me had a golden measuring rod to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out in a square. Its length and width are the same. He measured the city with the rod at 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to human measurement, which the angel used. The building material of its wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first foundation is jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the 10th chrysoprase, the 11th jacinth, the 12th amethyst. The 12 gates are 12 pearls. Each individual gate was made of a single pearl. The main street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb Are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, everyone. My name's Jonathan Smith, I'm the vicar of this parish and it's my joy to officiate this wedding ceremony. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. God is love and those who live in love live in God and God lives in them. We've come together in the presence of God to witness the marriage of heaven and earth and to ask God's blessing on them as we share their joy. That's what we're here for this morning. We're here to witness a wedding. We're here to witness the wedding, the marriage of heaven and of earth. This is Uh, uh, jumping forward as John sees this vision He's, he's transporting us forward to the destiny that we all share to witness a marriage to witness the marriage of heaven and earth it's a future reality it's not the case right now like you don't have to look very hard to see that right now heaven and earth are separated not just I'm not just talking about like conflicts that are raging around the world, evidence that heaven and earth are are separated, but just daily experience, daily frustration or sickness or sadness, all of these are evidences that heaven and earth remain separate. It's not a complete divorce. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, in his incarnation, that, that thing that we're going to celebrate At Advent, his first coming, Jesus brought heaven to earth in in a way. He announced that the kingdom of heaven was near, that it was among us. But the full consummation, the full marriage is yet to come. In Romans 8, Paul says that not, not only us, but all of creation is groaning for that day. It's groaning like a woman in childbirth, labor pains of of, of desire and desperation to bring forth something beautiful. It's not just us, it's the whole creation groaning for the marriage of heaven and earth. We have this idea that's sort of delivered to us by popular culture and uh, popular culture—not just modern popular culture, but really from the Middle Ages onwards—which gives us a picture of of heaven and earth and hell, which is misleading. It's not biblical. There is an exception. Um, I was listening to on Friday morning. I was taking India to school, and I'm trying to educate her in 80s music to try as an antidote for the stuff that she listens to. From today, and so it's it's like discipleship. It's just you know, it's 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 taking time, but I I trust in the fullness of time. She will forsake modern popular music and delight herself in the greatest decade of all time. So we were listening to Belinda Carlisle in the car, and she was telling us that, um, well, to quote her, "Ooh, baby." Do you know what it's worth? Oh, heaven is a place on earth. And I said to her, to, not to Belinda Carla, I said to India, <laughs> I said to India, she, you know, she's, I think she's onto something here. This is what I'm studying at the moment, that heaven, our eternal destiny, indeed will be a place on earth. Let's read about it, verse one to two of chapter 21 witnessed the wedding. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. We have this idea, again, it's, it's propagated by popular culture, but also by Christians who are informed by popular culture and by particularly by artistic representations of heaven and hell from the Middle Ages, but we have this idea that The universe is kind of split into three and we've got the here and now on earth And then there's heaven above us and hell below us and and when you die, you'll go to one of two places but No, there isn't a single verse in the Bible Old Testament New Testament cover to cover Not a single verse that says that you will go to heaven when you die. The intermediate state is what the the theologians talk about, the state of people who have died, right, from the day that they die until this wedding, this new heavens and new earth, that intermediate state where my mum is right now, that intermediate state is not made altogether clear to us in scripture. There's a lot of allusions to it. Paul uses the kind of metaphor of people falling asleep in the old covenant particularly, but really throughout the Bible, it's referred to as Sheol or Hades is the Greek term, the grave, the kind of whatever that place is where people go when they die. Jesus said to the thief on the cross today, you'll be with me in paradise, but didn't use the terminology of heaven. Paul talked about how great it will be to be away from the body and at home with the Lord in death. We saw last week in chapter 20, the the, the souls, not bodies, but the disembodied souls of people who had been beheaded, martyrs in the throne room of God, It's not altogether clear the state or the location of people who have died, but their eternal destiny, their eternal dwelling place, the new creation is a future reality. It's not yet in existence. That day won't come until this day Judgment day is now a thing of the past. New creation is all that there is for the future. So what will this marriage day, wedding day, what will this uh, future reality look like? Let's take a look. I've got verse 1 to 8 just on one big page, and I want us to see... There's, there's four things you get, and four things you don't get in the new creation. Have we got that page there, verse one to eight? So first of all, four things you don't get in the new creation. You don't get the sea, that's in verse one. The sea was no more. Now this is, um, it's important to know this is symbolic language here. As far as I can tell, There will be every ocean that we have on the earth right now will be present in the new creation in all of its beauty and splendor what john is referring to here is the conception of the sea in the hebrew mind for hebrews like john the sea was representative it was symbolic of everything that was chaotic the sea is a place of chaos it's a place of darkness and of death over the sea come enemies who assault Jerusalem. Uh, in the sea, there are monsters like Leviathan. Uh, if you fall into the sea, you, you go down to Sheol, to death. So the sea here is symbolic of, of, of everything that haunts the people of Israel. And the point of him saying here, the sea was no more, is that all of those things, darkness and death, are no more. There is nothing in the new creation to threaten you. There is nothing to haunt you. So you, there's no sea. There's also no sadness in verse 4. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more. He will wipe, God will wipe every tear from their eyes. This is an existence that we can't even conceive of. Your entire life has been saturated by sadness, like right? right from day one, the sadness of not being in a warm womb anymore, or not having milk on demand, right? That sadness, and then just projected out over the course of your life, saturated with sadness. All of life is loss. John says, in the new creation, there will be no more sadness. You have this intimate picture. If you're you're a daddy or a mummy, you know the, the intimacy that you experience when you have a child who's upset and to wipe away a tear from their cheek, to console and to comfort them. It's a beautiful experience and that's the very thing that God does with us. He wipes away every tear Grief, crying, pain, think about that. Think about what that encapsulates. If I say grief, crying, pain, all of that will be extinct. I don't think we can even conceive of an existence without those three things, those three thorns in our flesh. But all of them will be removed and forever. No sea, no sadness, no sin. Verse 8, cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars. It's just a way of saying sin. Sin and sinners will be removed from the new creation. They will be outside of the walls of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. God will not only wipe every tear, but he will remove Every sin, anything that is capable of producing sin or propagating sin is gone. Again, an astonishing idea. I mean, you can't go five minutes without sinning, right? It's really hard to go five minutes without sinning. Your entire life, to some degree, is uh, marked by sin. It's a beautiful thing, and in the New Testament, Paul addresses the church as saints. That's something that we should remember and take hold of. He doesn't say saints and sinners, or today saints, but I know that you've been sinners, or future saints slash sinners. Not even Martin Luther's at one time saint and sinner. No, he just, he just calls them saints. But we know that our entire existence is marked by sin. It's like an impression that's left on everything we do. It's a stain that we can't remove. But those who wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb are purified forever. The new creation will be superior to the first creation even in its original sinless conception because unlike the first creation, this one will never be prone to fall. The fall will never again happen. Sin will never enter into this world. You get no see, you get no sadness, you get no sin and most... Incredible of all, you get no death. Verse four. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. The previous things have passed away. The previous things marked by death have themselves died. They've passed. Death has passed away. Death has been defeated. Death is dead. No more death amazing no more death of self or loved ones or of plants or animals or i don't know anything no death an existence without death i sometimes wonder if in the new creation from time to time we might just we might just have like a like a a weird sort of, um, you know when you get deja vu, it's like a weird, like oh, I feel like I've done this before, or just this vague sense of something in the back of my mind. I wonder if, I don't know, this is speculation, but I wonder if just from time to time we might remember that there used to be death, and it would just occur to us as this most fantastical thought, like, I remember vaguely going to a funeral where we dug a hole and put someone in it and then covered it up. And it'll just be the weirdest idea to us because death will not exist. Death for us is a constant companion. Part of the reason we count birthdays or even time itself is because we're conscious of death. It's a, it's a counting towards death. Your calendar is a record of death. But not so in the new creation. There is no counting towards anything because there is no end. Death will be no more what do you get that's what you don't get this is what you get verse 3 you get God and this is the most important aspect of the new creation it's sometimes said that the, the the everyone wants to go to heaven but not everyone wants God to be there but this is the most important thing about heaven god himself will be with them and will be their god god's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them god himself will be in new creation with us in a way that we can't even conceive of now like god is with us now in the most profound sense his spirit dwells within us god is present in this room right now god is Always, everywhere, and yet we still experience the the separation, the distinction, the divorce. Not so in the new creation. He will be with them. He will be their God. He will live with them, dwell with them. The language of seeing God face to face that Paul employs. So God is something you get. You also get a new Jerusalem, verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned, adorned for her husband. The new Jerusalem belongs to us. If if I'm honest, and let me, let me just say just a word about current events, and so I think part of the sadness, the tragedy of the current conflict in the Middle East is the preoccupation with the city of Jerusalem, the preoccupation with that physical bit of land. I think that's a tragedy because for a couple of reasons. God's promise to Abraham was not that he would just inherit a piece of dirt in in the Middle East. God's promise to Abraham was that he would inherit the world, the whole world. His design was never to have this preoccupation with this geographical entity. And indeed the preoccupation of one group of people with that one piece of land misses the entire point of the new covenant. The new covenant came so that we, Greeks, Gentiles, non-Jews, would be included in that inheritance. So in, in Romans 4, and cha- uh, in chapter 4, verse 13, Paul says, the promise to Abraham Or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law but through the righteousness that comes by faith that's a very explosive passage what Paul as a Jew is saying is that Abraham's descendants are not those people born by blood they're not people who identify as a particular race that Abraham's descendants are all who have faith in the Lord Jesus and the inheritance of the land is not just that land in Jerusalem but the whole world. His vision is on a new creation, not on the present world that we live in. So as you pray for the people of the Middle East, for all people affected by the current conflict israelis and palestinians and everyone else who's been drawn into that terrible conflict pray pray that they would come to faith in the lord jesus and receive a land far greater than any present city far more valuable than any present geographical location. Jesus is the true Israel and the true promise of land was fulfilled in him and extended to all people who trust him. The new Jerusalem is the object of our desire, not the current one or the old one or anything else on this earth. Here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. So you get it. You get the new Jerusalem. You also get everything else new. Not just a new city, but all things New, if you just go back to that previous slide, in verse five, this is what God says. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. The entire universe is made new. The new creation is literally that. It is a universe teeming with God's glory, perfected in every way, without death and sin and sickness and sadness. All things made new. Can you can you even conceive of it? Like my mind just goes in every direction like like universe, a a, a renewed universe. Does that like can we are we are we going to other planets? Are we tearing around the universe, just checking things out? Can we, can we teleport different places like Jesus did with his resurrection body, just appearing? I don't know. It's worth thinking about a, a renewed universe. That is, the, the universe we have, but resurrected, reborn, remade, I'm making all things new, he says. You get God, you get a new Jerusalem, you get a new universe, and you get deep and abiding satisfaction. Now, here's the sickness that everyone has in this room right now. Every single person in this room is unsatisfied. Every single one of us, no matter how good you've got it, Even if you have realized the dream of modern Western civilization and you're rich and healthy and good looking, even then there's a gnawing, a gnawing within you, a groaning. God says in verse 6 it is done. I'm the alpha and the omega. That's the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet, right? I'm the the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. Deep, abiding satisfaction, every need always met no gnawing sense that I should have something that I don't have, or that I don't have what he has. has. Deep, abiding satisfaction given freely to all who thirst. That's the new creation. It doesn't answer all of our questions about eternity, but it doesn't mean to. John wants to reserve some mystery, something to yearn for, something to use your imagination to to conceive of. My kid always, my boy Judah, is constantly asking me, "Are are there going to be dinosaurs in heaven? And my answer is, I don't see why not. Every good thing that God created, God looked at his creation and said, this is good. I can think of no reason why Something that God created that's good won't be recreated in perfection. He asked me, you know, can we go swimming with sharks and they won't eat us? Yes. Because there's no more death. Can I jump off a 20-story building and not die? Yeah. Kids have the better than us when it comes to using their imaginations to conceive of things that are beyond the scope of old, crippled, cynical adults. We need to get some of that back. Some more childishness would do us some good. And it would enable us to yearn more. If we're going to groan for this, we need to be able to envision it. John's given us a vision here doesn't tell us everything, but it tells us some really important things. So he goes on. Within the new creation, there's going to be a new Eden. That's next week. We'll get to that in chapter 22. There's going to be a garden and a city, a new Eden and a new Jerusalem. So we'll come back to that next week. The new Jerusalem, the city, is what preoccupies him for the rest of this chapter. So let me read verse 9 to 14 for us. He says, Then one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He then carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. The city had a massive high wall with 12 gates. Twelve angels were at the gates. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. There were three gates on the east, the north, the south, the west. The city wall had 12 foundations, and the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb were on the foundations. This city is like an architectural summary, an architectural representation of all of salvation history. It's like the Bible got built into a city. So you have, interestingly, the foundation is the new covenant. The foundation are the 12 apostles of the Lamb and the gates are the 12 tribes of Israel, and it's a perfect cube, just like the Holy of Holies in the Old Covenant Temple, where God Himself dwelled. I don't want us to get too absorbed into all the measurements and stuff. Again, these are symbolic numbers. We've got to keep that in mind. This is a, a, a vision that's painting a, a, a symbolic picture. If this was real, I, from what I understand, it would take up half of Australia and it would be 260 times higher than Mount Everest. Okay, so I don't know how practical that is, but I don't think that's the point. What he wants us to know is that the holy of holies, where God dwells, is going to be on the earth, the new earth. And in fact, as we'll see in a second, the holy of holies itself will be symbolic. The point is, John's saying, all that God has done through every page of the Bible has its climax, its culmination, its consummation in this new creation. Everything that's ever been done in the service of salvation will be celebrated in the new creation here's the most important part verse 22 I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple going back to we will go back to the original readers If they got to the end of this book and learned that the eternal city has no temple, they would have been completely shocked. The whole reason you have a city is because you have a temple. A city is there to kind of house the most important part of the city, which is the temple. The temple is the most important part because that's where God dwells. I mean, this would be the case for probably any religion in the first century whether it's pagan or otherwise that's where the gods are that's where in Israel's case where God is and so it's the most important part of the entire infrastructure I don't know what it is for us maybe it's the MCG or something but the idea for them that you would have a city without a temple would be utterly perplexing the point that John is making is you don't need one The temple exists to house a God, or in the Holy of Holies, Yahweh himself, and it exists so that priests can work there to mediate God's presence for his people. They're doing the sacrifices and saying the prayers, and it's also that God can dwell with his people without destroying them all. None of that is necessary. You don't need a temple. You don't need a Holy of Holies you don't need a band of priests to mediate his presence because God himself is there. God himself is the temple and in some sense the whole universe is God's temple. Because God has made all things new, the entire universe is a temple, God's dwelling place is across the breadth and width of the entire universe. There's like a million allusions to the Old Testament in this chapter and I'm not going to go into them all. But if you know the creation account well, you will know that that itself is in Genesis 1 to 3, particularly 1 and 2, is itself a genre of poetry not too dissimilar from John's genre here and the purpose of it is not to give us some kind of scientific textbook it's to paint a picture for us of uh, of God's creation of the entire world as a kind of temple The creation of the world in the book of Genesis is modeled on, or or sorry, I should say, it is itself a foreshadowing of this new creation. God is the God of the entire universe. He constructs the world as a kind of temple of worship to him, and he himself is in the center of it as its unmediated presence. He walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, right? This vision here is like a explosive, an explosive culmination of that microcosm in Genesis 1 and 2. It's the fulfillment, it's the consummation, the culmination of everything that God intended from the beginning. It finds its end and its true being in Revelation 21. The new heavens, the new earth, all things made new, perfect, eternal. And the destiny of everyone who trusts in the Lamb who is slain. We don't get all our questions about eternity answered in the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation, its purpose isn't to give us some kind of roadmap to the future, some kind of code to decipher. It's just not what it's about. Most of it, vast majority of it is concerned with first century things and first century people. Here right at the end, we get a little, like a little keyhole view into the eternity that awaits us, when Jesus returns. But in the meantime, I find that the best way to think about the new creation, and I recommend that you think about this often, the best way to conceive of it is to use an analogy, and that analogy is the death and resurrection of Jesus himself. This This is the prototype. So think about the death and resurrection of Jesus. He passed away, but didn't stay dead. He was raised to new life and given a resurrection body. He was like the old Jesus, but different. He wasn't immediately recognized by people who would have recognized him in his earthly, with his earthly body. He was like, but unlike. He was physical, but not limited. He ate fish for breakfast with his disciples on the beach, but he appeared in rooms without coming through the doorway. Physical, but not limited. He was alive. Like they thought he was a ghost for a second, and he's like, no, 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 I'm, this is, look, flesh and blood. Alive, but not decaying. Alive, but unable to die. This is gonna be true, not just of you and I, who trust in the Lord Jesus, but of all of creation. We and it will die, it says in verse one, The old heaven and the old earth have passed away. They'll pass away, they'll die, but they won't stay dead. Like Jesus, they will be resurrected. Like Jesus, they will be clothed with resurrection body, either in the case of us, real life, flesh, blood, bone, eating fish, appearing in rooms, hey, or in the case of creation in all of the stuff of creation that God made in the first place and he made it very good all of the stuffness of creation will be remade resurrected itself never to die again itself recognizable but somehow unrecognizable i love that line in the last battle in the in the chronicles of narnia one of the greatest kids books ever written and not just for kids but they arrive at the new Narnia, the, the real Narnia. They arrive in Aslan's country and they see far off London where they had grown up as little kids. They say, and they, they, they see it and they, and they realise that the new London, they, they say, you know, the reason we love the old London is because it looked a little bit like the new London. Everything that you treasure about this life, you treasure because it looks just a little bit like what it will be. In the new creation, the reason you love the smell of roses is because it just smells a little bit like what they will smell like in the new creation. The new heavens and the new earth, like Jesus, will be vindicated. Jesus was raised from the dead because of God's approval on him, he was good. And so it is with us because righteousness we've received from God because of Jesus will be vindicated. We were righteous because of Him, His gift to us. And the world itself will be vindicated. It is good and it will be made perfect. I want us to have this vision of a new creation because for believers through the centuries, it has fueled their piety, it has fueled their passion, it's fueled their faith to to make it through darkness so that they can emerge into light. These light momentary afflictions are nothing worth comparing with the weight of glory that it will be revealed to us. There's a reason every one of the old hymns that we sing finishes, the last verse is always focused on the new creation. Now, to be honest, I think sometimes they might fall into some of that Middle Ages, like three-tiered existence thing, but the point is still a good one. We should have our eyes fixed on heaven. And as Belinda Carlisle said, Ooh, heaven is going to be a place on earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us enough to reveal yourself to us and this morning to give us just a little revelation of what is yet to come. And Lord God, you know that we groan along with the whole earth groaning for that day to come. And my prayer, Lord, is really just that you would come soon. As we move towards this season of Advent and looking ahead to the second coming of Jesus, I pray, Lord, that you would come. Please come soon. We're, we're just a little bit sick of this shadow land that we live in. And we want the reality. Please bring the reality soon. In the meantime, Father, please help us to be faithful to you as we walk through this life, this veil of tears, this conveyor belt of corpses, this this world that's racked with pain and sin and darkness and war and conflict and poverty and racism and oppression as we walk through this life help us to be faithful to the lamb and help us to have our eyes fixed on our eternal destiny with you a new creation with you Eternal life with you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
2: As called as, as his children, as children. salvation oh. will never